Thank you, Gerald. I always thank the worship team by name, and I never mention the people in the sound booth who, as we can see, have a really difficult job. So you can leave me muted for a second. I'll, I'll speak up. If you haven't turned in your copy of the scriptures yet, do so now. Mark chapter 10. There we go. We're going to look at the first 12 verses, verses 1 through 12, our sermon text this morning. If uh, we haven't met yet, I'm, I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the five pastors that we are... Uh, privilege to have in this church body, and I get to start the new year um, jumping right back in Mark's gospel. And what better place to jump right back into Mark's gospel than Mark chapter 10 and these first 12 verses on divorce. Um, I don't know about you, but that second song, which I think was new to us, right? We never sang that song before. Did, did you, like, if you're like me, I was first couple of verses like, all right, it's kind of slow. All right. All right, we'll sing this one. We'll get through it. And then, oh my goodness, like, hello, alive, awake. Like, so, so hopefully give me that kind of benefit with this sermon text, right? We're going to start off a little bit slow, Lord willing. Hopefully we'll, we'll get going. I suspect a sermon on marriage and divorce can conjure up some not very fun emotions. All of us probably feel some measure of grief whether from our own past experience, personally, or our parents, our siblings, people really close to us that used to be happily married and aren't anymore, and all of the circumstances and issues that come along with that. We hear a text like this, and it's easy for us to go, okay, all right, uh, be easy. Um, you might also, if you're, if you're a single person, I, I know that I can remember hearing sermons on marriage and divorce, and they would hold up marriage as if, if, if you're not married, if you're not a mister or a missus, then you can't really glorify Jesus. You're on the junior varsity team. I don't want you to hear either of those this morning. I want to be really careful as we jump in, because this morning's text comes with an invitation. Wherever you are, Wherever you've been, the Lord Jesus has a word of welcome today. He invites us to come and to believe that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He invites us to come and believe that in all of our grief or, or discontentment, in, in all of what we're feeling, there is a satisfying gospel that would sustain us. Now what that requires of us is for us to trust Jesus and for him to tell us what to do. Can you do that this morning? Good, good. This, this week, uh, Wednesday, I showed up to my barber for an appointment at noon, and MLG and W was outside, and the power pole was down, and he had no power. And so I walk in, and I look at him, and he does that motion that barbers do with the thing on the chair, and he, like, sweeps it away. I'm like, man, it's dark in here. Um, you sure about this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Come in, sit down. So in that moment, I'm thinking, all right, I trust my barber. He's a good barber. I'm going to trust him in the dark, right? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to trust that what he's going to do to me will be good. A lot could go wrong, but I trust my barber. Y'all, if it's dark for you right now, right? If you can't see what the Lord is doing, this text especially is an invitation. Sit down. <laughs> Let the Lord Jesus do his work. We trust that he's good. He's going to set us up right. He's not going to leave us, hopefully, wonky. He's in control. And so that's the first thing I want us to see as we jump into this text. Jesus is in control. Jesus decides how we DTR, how we define the relationship. 
That's what we're going to see in verse 1. When a single guy or gal, they become friends, maybe you've been through this, or you might be in this scenario now, right? You start conversations, you start talking, you become friends. Start hanging out a little bit more, maybe in groups and maybe some one-on-one, and, and there comes a time when you have to DTR, you have to define the relationship. Are we friends? Are we going to be more than friends? Is it something else? And so, y'all, before we take in any of what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce, I want you to realize he has every right. He has all authority to say it. And our response to what he says has to be dependent faith. No matter where we've been or where we are, we have to acknowledge that Jesus has the right to say this. Jesus isn't like me on the couch shouting at the quarterback, make a better throw, right? Hit the guy on the seam route. That's where you should go. I can never make that throw. And yet I'm yelling at him like he should do something. That's, that's not where Jesus is. Jesus is not the 20-year-old newlywed giving parenting advice to the empty nester. Jesus has all authority. And what Jesus has to say, we have to listen to. What Jesus has to say, we have to listen to. So here is Jesus, and I see this just in verse 1, how you see that broken off as a, as a semi-small paragraph. He left there, he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. From the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he shows up and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He comes teaching with authority. Chapter 1 says the kind of authority that those rabbis didn't have any clue what to do with. As Jesus would say, you've heard it said, I say to you. I, Jesus says, speak with absolute authority and what I have to say, you have to listen to. So here's Jesus, before he even gets into the meat and potatoes, here is, remember with me, the source, the origin, the cause, the crown of all creation. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Y'all love that when it's Matthew 28, right? He's with me always. That's so fantastic. It's so good. We like it when it means that he's with us making disciples. Not so sure we always love it when it means he can tell us what to do with our bodies. Who to love and how to love. Jesus has all authority, and he's with us always. You know what that means? Lord, Master, teaching us such that we would obey his commands. Y'all, that, 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 that means that our whims, our feelings, our emotions are not more authoritative than Jesus' teaching. What we want, what we think is good, is not more authoritative than what Jesus has said in his word. What I want is not more important than Jesus' commands. And y'all, Jesus' teaching, what I want you to see otherwise, his teaching is good and it's authoritative even when it isn't the easy path. He's likely in the same region, right? It introduces him and in, um, in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, in the same region where in chapter 6, John the Baptist lost his head by talking about what? Marriage. <laughs> All right? And so the Pharisees came in and said, they know that. They're like, oh, cool. We got John. All right. Hey, Jesus, let's talk about marriage again, because I think Herod might want to have a word with you. So in that case, Jesus, knowing what's happened to John, does he go, hmm, all right, hang on. Let me think about the context. 
let me adjust my message for this crowd. Let me tell them the right way to say this. No, Jesus, just as he has throughout Mark's gospel, but especially since chapter 8, right, take up your cross and follow me, he's calling us to this hard thing of crucified discipleship, calling us to obedience. Jesus has the right to define our relationship, all of them. And he can call us to obedience because of who he is, because he's in charge. So specifically with marriage, let's look at verses 2 through 9. Jesus designs marriage to display his glory. He designs marriage to make us more like himself, even, even when it's difficult. Read the text again, the first couple of verses here, starting with, with verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Don't you love that language? They came, the Pharisees did, to trap Jesus with a dangerous question, but it was a question that was commonly agreed upon. Divorce was an accepted practice among the Jews of Jesus' day. The debate wasn't over if we can get divorced. The debate was over why can we get divorced. So these Pharisees may have had certificates of divorce like in their back pocket. They could hand those things out at will. The question was, why? When someone came and said, I want to be divorced, what grounds constitute legit divorce? Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, gives a fuller question of this, uh, fuller version of this question. It says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So they're getting at the why. How? Why can we get divorced? Jesus says, hey, what did Moses tell you? Verse 3, And they summarized Deuteronomy 24. I want you to catch this for just a second. They summarized Deuteronomy 24, which says a man can divorce his wife uh, when a man takes his wife and marries her, verse 1, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That's the text of Deuteronomy 24. Now I'll paraphrase. Then he is allowed to write a certificate of divorce. So what does that mean? The issue in question... What does it mean that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her? Two major streams of thought. The first is, it means sexual immorality. It means that she's committed adultery so they can be divorced. The other camp said, eh, finds no favor in his eyes means she does almost anything that he doesn't like. Burns the toast. Uh-uh. does something that he doesn't favor, and so he can say, no thanks. So you've got those two camps. One, if she takes another lover, this is legit grounds for separation in God's sight. The other said, no, it's a lot broader. Anything that displeases him. What I want you to catch on the face of this is that they quote a passage that they feel like gives them permission. Right? Well, Moses said, I can divorce what does Jesus do? He says, I told you Moses, yeah, but, but go further back in Moses. Don't start, Jesus says, after the fall in Deuteronomy, start before the fall in Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 5, Mark chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus said to them, yeah, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because you're sinners after the fall, he wrote this commandment to you. 
Verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so Jesus says, I told you to tell me Moses, but I didn't mean tell me later Moses. I meant meant go deep cut Moses. Go back to the OG Moses in a sense. Go back to pre-fall Moses. Because Jesus wants us to realize he's restoring the goal of marriage here. Adam and Eve were were created to spread the glory of God through God-fearing offspring over all the face of the earth. They were fruitful and multiply so that the glory of God spread over all the world. That was the goal. And Jesus takes us back to that goal. But Jesus, how can you do that? Look around, Jesus. We're sinners We have messed up, we abuse, we abandon, we're immoral. But Jesus, still speaking with authority, takes us back to creation to say the problem isn't that they were male and female. The problem isn't in marriage itself. The problem is, three-letter word starts with an S, sin. The problem is sin. It isn't until Adam and Eve fall that those first effects of division start to come in. Do you realize that one of the first effects of sin is marital conflict? You realize that? God comes to Adam, and what does Adam say? Uh, it was her. <laughs> her fault. God, it's this woman that you gave me. It wasn't meant to be this way. So I want you to see, just on the face of it, God never commands divorce. That's why Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 2. God is not commanding divorce. He's commanding one woman, one man for one lifetime. God does regulate divorce as an effect of sin. So both of those are scripture. Genesis 2 is absolutely scripture. It is one man, one woman for one lifetime. Deuteronomy 24 is scripture. Why is Deuteronomy 24 there? What does Jesus say? Because of the hardness of your heart. Because sin has entered. God never commands divorce. God regulates it as an effect of sin in Deuteronomy and today. God never commands divorce, but God does regulate divorce as an effect of sin. And so Jesus, in saying this, knows that marriage is a commitment of hard-hearted people. That hasn't changed, right? But what he's doing is saying, no, here's the new creation that's here. Here's the new Genesis 2 that's here that's going to spread in the same way through God-fearing offspring, multiplying and filling the earth. Jesus knows that marriage is a commitment that God uses to show his redemptive power. It's a commitment of two hard-hearted people still battling sin, right? Don't amen too loud if you're sitting by your wife, husband, husband. I gotta be careful with that one. Two impatient people, maybe don't amen at all right here. Two selfish people, two greedy people, two unforgiving people, two sometimes bitter people. God is not surprised by the sin that we bring into marriage. He's not surprised by the sin that we affect in marriage. But Jesus is saying there's a greater purpose here. That purpose is to display his glory and power as we, in all of who we are, demonstrate the power of the gospel. You remember this when Paul picks up the same Genesis passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Ephesians 5, 31, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, right? Yes, Genesis, Jesus in Mark 9, 10, verse 32, Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul says this mystery of marriage is meant to demonstrate the power of God in uniting people through this gracious and merciful and forbearing and forgiving and, and, and patient love. That people can look into a husband and wife relationship and say, okay, there's something supernatural there. The love of a husband and wife, their forbearance, their patience, their joy, their humility, what we show to the person that we have the closest of all human relationships towards, the person that we often know the best, good, bad, and indifferent. When we move towards them in love, we're, we're demonstrating, I know all of you, and I know your warts, and I know your failures, and I know the way you have let me down in the past, and I love you. What does God do for us in the gospel? He knows us better than we know our spouse. He knows the innermost thoughts of our heart and soul. He has every reason to leave us and abandon us. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says, I know you completely and the thoroughness of your sin, and I love you totally. Despite who you are, because of the work of Jesus, my righteous, crucified, risen son. And so we are demonstrating that power of the gospel with the person that we know the best and love the most. This is why our marriages are so worth fighting for. It's bigger than us. It's it's bigger than what we are doing day to day. Dave Harvey, in, in, in a little book that's really helpful, When Sinners Say I Do, I'd encourage you to pick it up. Dave Harvey says, marriage is most amazing, not because it brings people joy, but it does, or allows for a nurturing environment for children, but it does, or because it stabilizes society, parentheses, even though it does all those things. Marriage is awesome because God designed it to display his glory. Marriage is awesome because God says, this is what the gospel looks like. People who know each other and love each other. The focus of a thriving marriage, he says, is the glory of God. So take that home for a second. Our everyday marriages are a big part of us making the kingdom of God visible. For people to be able to look in and say, okay, I I know what he did. I know what she did. I know who they are. And yet they are persevering in patient, forbearing Love. It may seem like you're just taking out the trash. It may seem like you're just doing the dishes. It may seem like you're just encouraging your spouse. It may seem like you're just filling up the car with gas. It may seem like you're just cleaning the bathroom or cooking dinner or plodding along at at work. They may feel like small things, but they are glimpses of the gospel's power. They are little snippets of what the gospel is doing in you as you continue moving in active love, in mercy, not giving someone what they deserve, in grace, giving them what they absolutely do not deserve. Jesus renews our marriages and, and, and uses them to display his glory. What does that require of you? If he's going to do that, what do I have to do? I have to commit and I have to keep my eyes on Jesus. I have to commit, good, bad, and indifferent, and we'll talk about some of that in, in just a second, some of the bad, because I want to be really careful there. But I have to commit and I have to keep my eyes on Jesus. It's going to hurt to talk about, but last Monday, Alabama... 
who deserved to be in the playoff, <laughs> lost a nail-biter to a cheating Michigan team that did not deserve to be in the playoff. And you can point the finger at one player. Usually that's not the case, but honestly, I feel like we can point the finger at the center who, who just whiffed a number of snaps, including the very last one. He snapped the ball early. He, he should not have done that. Non, Non-football people, there was one guy who made a bunch of mistakes that, that more or less cost the game, including that very final play. Do you know what that guy did this week? He transferred to Ohio State. I'm not kidding. It's not, a, it's not a parable. Before the week ended, he had one more year of eligibility left, and he said, I'm not going back to Tuscaloosa. That's dangerous. I'm going to go to the Ohio State University. Y'all, we can't run from our mistakes, but Jesus can redeem them. We can't run away from, from what we've done, but Jesus can make us new. He can bring about repentance and faith, and he can take bumbling idiots who have messed up life and marriage, and he can use us to glorify him in humble obedience. What does it take? Go back to Tuscaloosa. <laughs> Don't quit the team. Don't transfer. There's no transfer portal. It takes commitment and it takes faith. All right, now, lastly, what about when things go wrong? And I mean like way wrong. Number three, Jesus doesn't allow for easy divorce. Mark chapter 10, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. They're like, all right, uh, Jesus, like, you sure about that? Tell us again. Verse 11, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What does that tell you about Jesus' view of marriage? It's a lifelong commitment. It's forever. The I do is not broken by a piece of paper, right? The marriage covenant is a lasting covenant. And so Jesus' final word on the matter in Mark is to say it in a Southern Baptist way, once married, always married. If you're in, you're in. If that's the only text that we had about divorce, we would sweat. What if he cheats? What if she leaves? What if they're abusive? Do I have to stay? Do I have to keep taking it? Do I have to live under that kind of abusive oppression? In a parallel text in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, it, it was also said to you, he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, right? Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's the same idea as Deuteronomy 24. If there's sexual immorality, if there's something outside the marriage covenant bonds, then divorce is permitted. 1 Corinthians 7, and I think verse... 15, I can't remember off the top of my head, but, but Paul says if an uh, unbelieving husband is married to a believing spouse and he leaves, he abandons, then she is free to be separated. The idea here is that God is providing provisions for divorce. It wasn't meant to be this way. There was no Genesis 2 provision. But post-Genesis 3, there has to be, by God's accounting, a provision if someone commits adultery, then God says, you are permitted then to abandon that relationship. You're permitted to, to 
filed for a divorce. You say, but, but pastor, pastor, doesn't the gospel say that, that, that if they repent, then I've got to forgive the offending, cheating spouse? I've got to welcome them back in in the same way? No, the gospel says you receive them as a brother or sister if they repent. But God's word is not forcing us back into a relationship where that kind of trust is broken. And we have to be really careful to make a law where God's word is not making a law. Jesus is clearly saying, except on the ground of sexual morality, Paul is saying in the case of abandonment. And I think we can absolutely uh, infer from that abuse. And so in those situations, we have permission and, and provision that we wouldn't stand in someone's way. That's where I want to be super clear and careful because we love the gospel. We love what the gospel has done for us. We love that it's changing us. And we can look into someone's relationship and say, yeah, she sinned against you. Yeah, he sinned against you. Forgive them from the heart. Receive them back. Why would we say that if God hasn't said that? God is making provisions to protect innocent people in the case of abuse, abandonment, immorality. Marriage in the beginning didn't have this, but... After Adam said, hey, it's this woman that you gave me, Deuteronomy 24 makes protections and provisions for an exit because when sin enters the world, spouses cheat, spouses neglect, spouses abuse. Sin is the problem. Jesus says, it's your hard hearts, the reason that he wrote you this. Sin is the problem. And so without, with, with sin comes protections for innocent Spouses, statistics vary, but they say somewhere around one in four women and one in nine men have been a victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner. They say on average it takes a victim seven attempts before they successfully escape that abuse. The cards are stacked against women, especially in abuse situations. She can report what he said and what he's done, violent, clear, verbal threats, but often the best thing that law enforcement can do is a protective order. What good is a protective order against a violent criminal? I, I, a, a friend of mine was in a situation he was describing to me from a couple of weeks ago. He stepped in to help a coworker of his who was receiving violent threats from her husband. He started then receiving the same violent threats. They go to police, protective order. Husband comes and shoots up her mother's house, hits her. What could they do? He hadn't done anything yet. Well, now he has. We have to be careful because this, this kind of abuse is, is not an uncommon thing. And so we have to be mindful of this. 1 Corinthians 7 does not call a spouse to keep submitting to an abusive partner. It recognizes that, that, that an abusive partner is an unrepentant believer. You can be separate from them. When it comes to marriage and divorce, we have to be careful. We are not in the situation. We have to ask questions. We have to listen. We have to support and so we all then, sitting down in the barber's chair, so to speak, we trust Jesus. Okay, what he says to do, I will do, but we can't speak where he hasn't spoken. Big picture here, God protects us from abuse and abandonment while he calls us to live in gospel grace and forgiveness. Remember, there's lots of mess, lots of divorces, lots of hurt, lots of sin. People sin against us and our sin against others, but still, there's lots of gospel redemption. Jesus meets us in our mess. Doesn't hold his nose and go to the other side of the road and go, oh, you've done that? Oh, you've been there? Jesus redeems broken marriages 
He renews broken stories. In the gospel, we believe Christ died for our sins and was raised to give us life. The the kind of offer of grace that's available to us no matter what we've walked through. No matter where we've been, no matter where we are now. The gospel meets us in our mess. Would you ask the Lord this morning to awaken a passion in you for the gospel to shake up, if you're married, your marriage? The fix here is not, I don't have 10 simple steps to, to, to stronger marriage. All right? I, don't, I don't have a value system to lay out for you from the text. At the heart of the fix here is a reorienting your heart around the gospel, around the good news of what Jesus has done, to start at the well and saying, okay, fill me up, Lord Jesus. I need to see your mercy for me. I need to see your grace towards me. I need to see your love towards me because I need to give that love, mercy, and grace to other folks, especially those folks who are closest to me. And so it isn't 10 simple steps. It's going, okay, come back to the well of the gospel. Come back to the well of the gospel. Come back to the well of the gospel. And Lord Jesus, please rekindle a passion in me to glorify Jesus with all of my life, but most especially this closest relationship. And we trust that he will. He'll do it. No matter if you've got 99 problems and your spouse is half of them, right? He'll he'll do it. He'll do it. You run back to Christ. He will meet you with grace. He will. Have have you run to him this morning? Have you run to him this week? Have you ever run to him before? I I want to invite you to come to him because he will not turn you away. He will not leave you forsaken. He will not abandon you. He is there for you no matter what past hurt, no matter what past sin, no matter where you've been. Come to him. He'll make you new. I want to call in from the bullpen, Pastor John, as he comes up this morning, and he's going to offer our final prayer for the sermon. I want to do this because And every time we pray as elders, uh, Pastor John takes the opportunity to pray for marriages, to pray for couples, to pray for you all, a lot of times by name. And I thought rather than than me praying in application of the text, let's get the guy that always prays in application of this text for our marriages. So Pastor John, will you pray? 